It's season two of the Carson McCullough Center's weekly We of Me. This is the first of three episodes based on our interview with Columbus State University archivist Tom Converse. A native of Western Kentucky, Tom Converse earned his Bachelor of Arts and Master of Library Science degrees from the University of Kentucky. In a long career in which he first headed a federal grant-funded project at the Kentucky State Archives to survey and describe all archival and manuscript holdings within the state, Converse later served as consular officer in the U.S. Foreign Service in Guatemala City, Guatemala, Barcelona, Spain, and Managua, Nicaragua. Then, as the head librarian of the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and finally as head of the Archives and Records section of the Inter-American Development Bank. After retiring in 2009, he began as a volunteer at the CSU Archives in July of 2010 and was hired as a part-time staffer in October of that year. Since that time, he has worked on several archival collections at CSU, including the Carson McCullers-related suite of collections, the Eagle and Phoenix Mills records, and many others. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. All right, uh, Tom Converse, I'm so happy that you're with us today and that you are actually in the CSU archives because that's what we're here to talk about. You know, I consider you, Tom, the person who has spent more time with the McCullough's materials in the CSU archives probably than anybody. So I'm really happy to, to be able to talk to you about that. The first thing is, could you, for our listeners, could you just summarize uh, briefly the story of how the McCullers papers uh, and the other things that we have related to Carson McCullers came to the CSU archives? Sure, it's an interesting story. Everything connected to Carson McCullers becomes a story and they're all interesting in their own right. But the, the main body of material that we have was a donation from uh, Carson McCullers friend, partner, uh, I don't know really what to call her. She was all things to Carson, enabler perhaps, certainly friend. Uh, Dr. Mary Mercer, Mary Elizabeth Mercer, who was born in on June 7, 1911, so she was six years older than Carson McCullers, lived to be 102 and died in uh, April of 2013. She met Carson in 1958 as the result of a referral to her. She was a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist, interestingly enough, from Carson's um, psychiatrist in Manhattan who felt it was too difficult for her to get from Nyack into Manhattan. So he hoped that she would be able to get more uh, easily to um, Dr. Mercer since they lived about a mile apart, two miles apart. So they clicked, they um, had formed an instant bond that lasted until Carson's death. And that flame was fanned for another 45 years by Dr. Mercer, who um, inherited one third of Carson's estate the two estates, the literary estate and the physical estate. She bought out um, the other heirs who were Carson's brother, Lamar, and her sister, Marguerite, known as Rita. For most of the physical stuff, the literary estate was sold to the Harry Ransom Center for Literary Studies in Austin, Texas, the University of Texas. So anything that had Carson's handwriting on it in Carson's possession went to the Harry Ransom Center. Everything else went to Mary Mercer after she bought out the other heirs for most of the physical possessions and eventually came here to us. She 
decided, and she struggled with it, whether to send it um, to CSU, whether to sell it perhaps to the Harry Ransom Center or to Duke, there were other options. And she finally opted for the collection of some 150 or 60 boxes that she had of, of paper materials, plus a number of boxes of artifacts and what of Carson's library existed that she had not written her name in. If she'd written her name in it, it went to the Harry Ransom Center. If it just belonged to her and was on her shelf, it went ultimately to Dr. Mercer, who gave those as well as her own library to Columbus State University. It's a wonderful, wonderful collection. Uh, she actually left it to specifically the Carson McCullers Center for Writers and Musicians. So you're the, actually the owner of it, I guess. Right. But we're happy to have it in the archives, along with some other things like the Margaret Sullivan papers, Carlos Dew's papers, and several others. Well, I wonder if also if you could just give us, again, uh, briefly sort of the grand sweep of what the archives has uh, related to Carson McCullers. Well, certainly the, the core of it is the Mercer donation, but almost not quite as large, but I think almost as interesting and as important is the pa papers of Margaret Sullivan. Margaret Sue Sullivan was a PhD in English literature, uh, was from Columbus, Georgia, as was Carson McCullers. She was born about 15 years after Carson McCullers, attended the same school, had the same friends. She sounds just like her in tape recordings. It's like Carson McCullers is speaking through the voice of Margaret Sullivan. Margaret Sullivan had a an obstacle to her goal in life, which was to write the definitive biography of Carson McCullers. She wrote her PhD uh, thesis on McCullers and did extensive research into Carson McCullers, which did not come to fruition because mainly of her health. She developed lupus while she was in the process of doing that, and she was beat to the post by Virginia Carr. And that's a whole nother story of the, yeah. yes, the feud yes. between Virginia Carr and Margaret Sullivan. But as part of her Carson research, she contacted Lillian Smith, who was another female Georgia writer who was very involved in um, civil rights and women's education, women's rights, the ERA, and other things. So there's a fascinating exchange of letters between Margaret Sullivan and Lillian Smith about Carson. And then it went off into uh, Lillian Smith more than Carson, because after the publication of the Carr material, Margaret Sullivan decided she would write the definitive biography of Lillian Smith. So there is a fascinating trove of correspondence. Lillian Smith had known Carson uh, when they both lived in New York in the in early 40s and after, and had been good friends. And indeed, Carson was present in Lillian Smith's home the night that she got the call about Reeves' suicide. And Lillian Smith told her about it. And that is detailed in a letter to um, to Margaret Sullivan. So the Margaret Sullivan papers are fascinating. And, and one of the most interesting factor, factors about it is that she, Margaret Sullivan, on at least two occasions was in Carson McCullers' home in Nyack. Once, I think, was after one of the times Carson set the place on fire with smoking materials, badly disposed of. And the other, I think, was after her death because she refers in some of the recordings to things that are marked to go to the Harry Ransom Center. But she recorded um, 150 cassette tapes um, of a half an hour each, uh, mostly of material that she just kind of picked up and read at random in uh, the McCullers' home. Yeah, so I, I don't know if you've heard, uh, Tom, but we've actually used two of those in the podcast. You know, we do a reading oh, no. for every oh. episode, yeah. And we have two episodes in which the reading is actually a snippet of those recordings, which not only they have now all been digitalized yes. 
And so they're available on the CSU archives website, which I think is a fantastic thing. And it's just fascinating to me. And, and like you said, you know, it's great because Margaret Sullivan's voice is so similar to Carson's and they, they grew up in the same place and it is near enough in age that there's that similarity. But also, I don't know, there's just something about it that it's so documentary what she's no. doing and reading it, you know, without emotion or anything and just telling you what it is. But occasionally she will say, oh. This is interesting, or you yeah, know, something like yeah, that. You know, yeah, uh, I love it. I love, yeah. I love that we have that. Uh, you know, we have that material. And and probably a third of them have been transcribed, and they were transcribed or paraphrased by me. So mm, that was okay. what I did during the first few months of the pandemic lockdown. I just sat at my computer at home and logged in and and took dictation from the, a woman channeling Carson McCullers. It was just, of course, and they were so random. You'd have different pages of a letter and read on different tapes and you know she'd say this is missing the first page or this is missing the last and then she'd say oh this goes with that letter from so and so and so to put it all together would be a chore and of course it's all I think most of it is in the Harry Ransom Center the originals of it if they survive but so many were things like receipts for the pier mirror for example and uh the cleaning uh of the upholstery after the fire in one of the fires in in the house whether they actually were discarded or, or went to the Harry Ransom Center, I don't know. But yeah. it's just well, it's and, and the other thing, as as you just uh, pointed out, she's actually in Carson's house in Nyack when she's reading. This is right. Uh, those and some of them, Carson was there at the time, uh, presumably in in her bedroom, yeah. where she was most of the time. And yeah. I, I imagine that uh, Margaret Sullivan was probably in that front room or something like that as she's yeah. reading through all of those. It's very cool. It's, it's cool. Very, very it's cool. cool. It, it's a wonderful resource. Again, yeah. I suspect most of it is probably properly arranged in better order in the Harry Ransom Center. But there's nothing like listening to it being read raw in in the moment. Uh, yeah. To me, uh, just yeah. fascinating. And then we have some other stuff too that we, you, you, you're talking about the papers and things like that, but we also have, and you, you mentioned Carson's library, her record collection, Mary Mercer's library and right. record collection. And then we have, we have a number of items of furniture and works of art that are in the Smith McCullers house here mm-hmm. in Columbus. I was just giving a house tour yesterday yeah. to some uh, visitors from Pennsylvania, one of whom is a middle school English teacher and a, a longtime lover of Carson McCullers. And so he was thrilled to be in the house and took a, you know, a lot of pictures and was asking a lot of questions. So I, you know, I love telling that story about some of those pieces that we have, like the table. The where the fa- the, yeah, the famous luncheon took place and, you know, stuff like that to, to people who appreciate it and are like, wow, that is so cool. What are some other items like that that we have in um, the archives? Well, we have among the artifacts that we have are the, uh, are included the the uh, dictaphone machine that the psychiatric sessions were recorded on. Mm -hmm. And then as part of the attempt to break the writer's block, which was the reason that she began seeing Mary Mercer, Mercer assigned her homework of of actually typing the transcripts of them. And Carson, by that time, was unable to use both hands and she couldn't do the shift bar. So it's all caps. It's like being screened at by Carson Mm -hmm. McCullers and Dr. Mercer. And on really... um, acidic um, paper, but it's fascinating to see. And we have the dictaphone machine. We do not have the belts. I I don't know what happened to them, but they did not arise. It'd be fascinating to hear the two um, conversations going on because it is sometimes difficult to tell whether it's Mercer speaking or or McCullough speaking. She also didn't use quotation marks and she didn't use much punctuation. So we have that. We have a blanket that I think is the one that 
she brought back from Ireland when she visited John Houston. You have the, uh, the julep cup that was probably hardwired into her hand most of her life. I think that's a great thing to have. You also have in the house on Stark Avenue, the book that she was holding when she had her fatal stroke, which was yep. the uh, an edition, paperback edition of Out of Africa by Isaac Dennison. We've got um, a robe, a Chinese robe that she wore. It's hard to nail that down. I think she had several. She's got and, several. We've got one in the house, and I'm not sure if it's the one that she used to lie about and say was the 2,000-year-old ceremonial yeah. robe. <laughs> uh-huh. I always tell people, you know, hey, she's a fiction writer. She makes things That's up. That's right. So, yeah. That's <laughs> Uh, we also know, have the the uh, a collection from her cousin Jordan Massey, who was another right. raconteur of of some note, and he uh, has his descriptions. He was uh, he attended the luncheon with Arthur Miller right. and Marilyn Monroe and Isaac Dennison, Got and on. we have his notes on that, and that's that's quite interesting as well. Yeah. yeah, you may have you know you may have already just answered this question, but uh, well, I'll put it this way: I I, I think who was maybe in Mary Dearborn. I asked her, "What do you think is the best?" thing that we have in the CSU archives. And she said, oh, the, the dictaphone transcription. Oh, really? She said, I think that's the, that's the most important thing at the CSU archives. What do you think? I think there are a couple of candidates for that. One is the last letter that Reeves wrote to her. And why that is not in the Harry Ransom Center, I do not know. Yeah. But he wrote her for the last time on September 6th, 1953, from their home in France after the murder-suicide pact or whatever it was failed and she had fled France and begun divorce proceedings for the second time against. Right. And it's it's just really touching. If you don't mind, I could read three or four paragraphs from it. No, please do. Read. Absolutely. Yeah. He starts out by, uh, it's typed, which is nice because <laughs> mm-hmm. none, none of their handwriting is very good. But uh, he starts out with some of the logistics about the mail system in France and he had opened a letter and that, that was hers and he was sorry and so forth. Uh, and then he talks about an automobile accident he had uh, where the car, which belonged to Carson, was damaged, but he was the other driver was at fault and he was going to get it uh, repaired. But then he says, I was dizzy as a loon for a week, but I'm better now and can keep going. I get to work every day with Breton. I do not, underline, drink and will soon be bringing in some money for you. Have you written and because of the strike have letters failed to get through? Or do you not wish to communicate further? Again, I ask, could you reconsider when, after several months, I have proved myself and am sending you money? Do you think we could pick up the spark of old love again? Or is it all gone? At least you can bear me the courtesy of an answer, either yes or no, about the house, baggage, etc. I talked with Simone again Friday. She's out of the hospital and has talked with American Express, and it goes on about logistics, about what it will take and how duty will have to be paid on anything over $150 and so forth. And then he says, the Jeffreys are dears and send you their best love. That's the, uh, the couple who were her cook and housekeeper and driver and gardener. I do not have the funds now to pay them much, but I keep the larder full, and when I come on weekends, I bring things from the post exchange and commissary. Enclosed are snapshots of four good friends of yours. I suspect they were the dogs. The pictures were not included. In my last talk with Simone, she said that Rita had asked that the typewriter and phonograph and records be sent on also. Will do. But Carson, I paid for the typewriter myself and I need it in my business. They're damned expensive here. If Rita or Dan need a typewriter immediately, can't they get one on credit there? I will pay for it as soon as I can. Ask Rita to write Simone her wishes on this. If and when you wish a divorce, I will cooperate in every respect. 
It will be up to Floria, Carson's lawyer, to write Mr. Porter, who was the lawyer there in France, regarding the details. I don't know how it's done transatlantic. Whether we are divorced or not, it makes no difference in my deep love and feelings for you. I cannot possibly have any personal life without you. And whether we are together or apart, I will think of you the first thing in the morning and the last thing at night. Give me a little time and I will also make money for you, Butterduck Reeves. And then there's a PS that says, after rereading Floria's letter of August 28th and considering what she said of the state of your health on arrival in New York, I adjure you not to make any decision at this time. Please give yourself a little time. I will do everything possible in the intervals in the interest of your property here. I am sane, sober, fully dressed, and in my right mind. I will do anything, anything, underlined, for your ease and peace of mind. I love you, R. And six weeks later, he killed himself. Wow, that is really that is really something. It's it's uh, that, you know it's it's a cliched favorite. word, but it really was tragic, wasn't it? Oh, know? it was. It was. Yeah. And I've you know talked a lot with other people uh, on the podcast about this subject and the relationship between Carson and Reeves. And you know, a number of Mary Dearborn, for instance, thinks that Carson was a lesbian, um, mm -hmm. even though uh, Carson was did not have the kind of experience I think that allowed her to have the relationships with women she might have wanted to have. Because you know, and that's one of the things we talked about is because she was so out of her league with the people she fell in love with, like uh, Anne-Marie Clark Schwarzenbach, yeah. you know, yeah, and, yeah. And, um, and so forth. And yet at the same time, it seems clear that she loved Reeves and oh. there's no question that he loved her. And yes. you know, one of the things that Mary Dearborn says is that it's it must have been really something to be loved that much by someone because he clearly did. He, he clearly, and she loved him, but they just couldn't live together. I mean, it's, I guess uh, oil and water love each other, but they can't quite yeah. mingle, you know. Yeah, well, and of course, I, Reeves had his his flings with everyone from David Diamond to who knows what, you know, right. and who. Yeah. I don't know whether I think Carson is a lesbian or not. In some ways, I think she was almost omnisexual in that she seemed to be attracted to yeah. both genders and and um, age had no no difference. But because of her physical and her mental fragility, I'm not sure she ever did anything, really, yeah. in, in yeah. terms of a sexual experience, or if she did, that it was anything more than an experiment or something. I, I, I see her as kind of a, an eggshell person that just longed for love. Yeah. And you see that in the novels as well. And yet, when it came down to it, I'm not sure she was capable physically or mentally of going through the, the motions, if you will, of, of yeah. sex. You know, I, I really... I don't know. And yeah. I don't know that we'll ever know. It's true. And and uh, I think you're right to point out that uh, maybe, you know, some of our best, I don't know, evidence, if that's the right word on the subject is the novels themselves. Because to me, it says a lot about what Carson McCullers, uh, what love meant to her and mm -hmm. the kind of love that was most important to her. And so, yeah, yeah you, you're, you're probably right as well in saying that um, we can't know for sure. Some, you know, it's, it's a, a topic of debate and i'm sure you know about the jen chaplin book where her basic argument is that carson was a closeted lesbian 
Um, <laughs> well, that's that's one thing is, and I think Mary Dearborn says the same thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, is, it wasn't a very it wasn't a very secret closet, was it? No. Uh, <laughs> it was a real big closet with a wide open door. Yeah, and, and I, but anyway, I you know I, that that's that's a different topic. But thank you for reading that. That is that is really a, a if you you know if you know the story of Carson McCullers and of Reeves McCullers, that is a a, a poignant thing that you read there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCullers Center's weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at mccullerscenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullers Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullers' 100th birthday on February 19th, 2017. I'm Nick Williams, technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Tom Converse's reading of the Reeves McCullers letter to Carson McCullers is in the Dr. Mary E. Mercer Carson McCullers collection at Columbus State University Archives. The music you heard during the readings was Falciana from Sergio Assad's Aquarelle, performed live in Legacy Hall by Carlos Bedoya on March 5th, 2021.